the curiosity of... Hey, Charles. This week, we are investigating turrets and towers. Turrets and temples, Turrets and temples, so I always get it wrong. We are listening to an Egyptian mummy, and we are exploring our first funny phobia. So what have you been up to since we last recorded? Well, yesterday I had a football tournament, which mm-hmm. went well, and that was uh, very fun. Lovely day yesterday as well. Yeah. And uh, you've got a correction that you want to do, haven't you, from a previous episode? Uh, yeah, that's right. It's that in episode six, we did the Stone Age quiz, mm-hmm. and one of the questions was, uh, were Stone Age houses made out of stone? And I said no. But uh, Curious Granny was actually correct, saying, yes, it was stone. So we've robbed her of a point, have we? I don't think it would have made much of a difference, though. No, but she still did very well. Sure she did. Yeah. Okay, we are on Twitter, at CurieChildPod, so please follow us there and send us a message. We are also on Apple iTunes... Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Podbean and all of those. Uh, We're now on Podchaser as well, so please leave reviews for us there. These podcasts live or die by their reviews. And um, I recently changed our category we were in, and in doing that, I lost our ratings and reviews that we already had. So we're back down to uh, limited numbers. So please, please, please review us. So should we get on with the show? On with the show. Good Anton investigates. Castles. Okay, so our topic this term at school has been temples and turrets. Hmm, interesting. So temples meaning like temples like monks go to and stuff and um, castle turrets. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Also at school, we visited Chateau de Marais, more commonly known as Ivy Castle. So why is it called Chateau de Marais? Chateau means castle. Marais means marshland. It was built on marshy land. Okay, so it's a good defensible position then. And yeah. It's hard to approach. What can you tell me about it? Ivy Castle is a Mott and Bailey. So Mott meaning mound and Bailey meaning enclosed area or ditch. Okay. So the Mott normally has the keep on it, which is um, like, well, it's where you keep things in the castle so that's on a big hill normally man-made mm-hmm. and then baileys that's like um you might have heard of moats it's like an empty moat okay yeah or it could be like an enclosed area so you'd have yeah. um like the motts would be the keep or the main sort of fort on top of a hill and be yeah. overlooking an enclosed space of land which could have a wall around it or it could have a ditch Sometimes the enclosed space would be like inside a few hills or something. Mm-hmm. That would mean that the enemies would get a vantage point over the top of the um, mot. Yeah, so it was really important when you're planning a castle to find a good position, wasn't it? Yeah. A good position to defend that could also project power over the landscape. Yeah. Um, what else can you tell me about it? Ivory Castle was built in the early uh, 1200s. And it was Guernsey's main defensive structure and used as a refuge from pirates. Ooh, and the French, I imagine. Yeah. So this was until Castle Cornet was built, a much bigger, uh, stronger castle, which at the time wasn't even properly linked onto the um, island. Yeah, it's a separate island, yeah. wasn't it? Out, um, outside St Peterport, our main yeah. town. 
that's the best sort of defensive position you can get. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then Ivy Castle, that was then later taken over by the Germans, and the they built a bunker onto it in World War Two. Yeah, so obviously they saw some strategic importance still there, yeah. didn't they? Unfortunately, that destroyed all the archaeological things. Yeah, when they were digging their foundations. Yeah. yeah for, um, see, I remember going there when I was about your age with Curious Gramps and um, Curious Uncle Steve. Yeah, we were hoping to get him on the podcast too as well. One day. Yeah. yeah. And um, there's a moat around it and we would kind of climb over the wall there and we'd be down by the water's edge and we would um, look under logs and peel back bark of the fallen logs and we yeah. found some newts, including, I think it was greater crested newts as well. Yeah. Pretty cool. I'm sure you find a lot of wood lice if you're peeling back <laughs> the um, bark. Yeah, a lot of cheesy bugs. Yeah, or Granny Greys. Granny Greys. You'll um, see what we mean in a later episode. That's right, yeah. Yeah, so Ivy Castle, which so I went there with you and you also went to school, didn't you? And it's it's quite a small castle and there's not actually yeah. that much there now, is there? There's just a few kind yeah. of perimeter walls of the ditch and the mate left. Yeah, and there's the... Uh, there's like a little dungeon, small dungeon type building, <laughs> yeah. and then there's the bunker next to it, a small bunker next to it. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty empty. Yeah, but it's by nature reserve now yeah. as well. Uh, at school, we had a project to do a day in the life of a, um, a person who lives in a castle. Mm-hmm. So I chose to do a blacksmith. Cool. Um, at first, I wanted to do a knight. But then I realised I always do something about that, so I decided to do a blacksmith. He was one of the most important people uh, in the castle, the blacksmith. Mm-hmm. Uh, if anyone else wanted any tools or nails or anything made for them, they'd have to come to him. Yeah, so a lot of the other professions kind of relied yeah. on him to make the things they used then. Yeah. They're called blacksmiths because... They use black metals like iron. If you used gold or silver, it would be called a white smith. Because that's white metals. Oh, interesting. Here are some things that have made. So, a variety of weapons and instruments made by a medieval blacksmith included swords and daggers, doornails and knobs, locks and keys, knives, horseshoes, armors and arrowheads. Sometimes he would also make jewellery items, as well as torture devices. <laughs> Another job was to make um, the tools and instruments used in farming. So do you think he also designed these torture devices? Um, I mean, that must be an odd thing to, yeah. have to be commissioned to make. Yeah. Actually, that reminds me of the story of the man who invented the guillotine, Mr Guillotine. Um, he hated... That is named after him, because he really didn't like the idea of it being used to kill people. Because I think he just wanted to try and find a more humane yeah. way to chop off people's heads, but he didn't like the fact that he was associated with it. Mass murder weapon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, sorry, so uh, it wasn't all glamour then, it wasn't all armour and swords no. like you see in films and games. But, uh, this is very funny. In the uh, When I did my presentation at school, we had like people knock on the door and uh, telling him what they want made for them. Mm-hmm. The most common thing was nails. I think there are over ten thousand nails being asked <laughs> for to make. But uh, blacksmiths, they could only make one thousand five hundred nails a week. 
To be honest, that's quite a few, but it's not that that many. Yeah, it's pretty slow to heat as well, isn't it? Because yeah. they have to heat up all the metal, shape it all, yeah. just for a tiny thing. And if you think of I know, building a castle and you're trying to do um, the roof for it or something, you need a lot of wood and a lot of nails there. Yeah. I don't think people appreciate, actually, just the, the labour involved in that. I know. It's amazing. If you were to make tools for others, he'd need his own. So... I'm just going to name a few here. Obviously, he needed a variety of hammers, like um, maybe some smaller hammers for uh, shaping things, um, big sledgehammers just to beat it down, mm-hmm. tongs to lift up the um, very, well, the boiling metal, pretty much. Yeah, um, molten metal. Yeah, and bellows, which are um, the things you pump air into the fire to keep it going keep it going hot yeah it keeps it hot can you remember what they burnt in the fire charcoal mm-hmm. yeah yeah they had to reach 900 degrees celsius <laughs> that's properly hot yes it must have been i know really hard work yeah so it would have been very very um hot and very smoky Mm-hmm. As well. But you can see from that why in uh, lots of, say, fantasy tales and stories, there's often a blacksmith. He's a like, big, strong character. Yeah. And sometimes he's uh, he becomes a hero or something because he was so important to the communities there. And because you picture him making swords all the time, so you imagine him being good with one and all sorts, don't you? Yeah. It was funny. In the presentation, we did a little picture of his dream sword. He's mm-hmm. like, I wish I could make more swords, not more nails. Yeah. <laughs> Now on to another presentation that they did. Uh, This is one of the most famous medieval castles in history and it's called Chateau Gerlard. Uh, Yeah, it was built by Richard the Lionheart. My (laughs) favourite. In Normandy. Designed to be the ultimate castle. He said he could even defend it if the walls were made of butter. <laughs> okay, that's pretty um, high praise of the castle yeah. and of himself, I think, there. And also, as it's butter, you wouldn't be able to eat your way through it because it would get a bit. Ugh. Yeah, you get cholesterol as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about. Yeah, so it was also built on a high rocky uh, outcrop that could only be approached from one direction. Not the band. Not again. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's annoying calling a band something very common. Um, it was one of the first castles to use... Uh, to use... Machicolation. Which were openings in the wall where rocks and boiling oil could be dropped on attackers. Yeah, so it was... Sort of lots of advanced defence and things yeah. in the castle, wasn't it? The walls were up to three metres thick and way too tall for ladders to be placed down. Yeah, there was uh, stories that when people were trying to attack the castle, their ladders wouldn't reach the top of the wall. Yeah. So they were kind of stuck there. And then when there's a oil or rocks being thrown at them from above as well, it's not very pleasant. <laughs> yeah. After Richard first died... The castle was sieged by the French king, Philip II. King John, so um, Richard the Lion's Heart's brother, Mm -hmm. wasn't as good a fighter as Richard and failed to protect his brother's favourite castle, 
when it was sieged in 1203. During the siege, some civilians were allowed to leave, but King Philip was so angry he refused to let any more through the French lines, and they were forced to hide under the castle walls, surviving on whatever food uh, they had. So dogs, bark, um, and roots. Yeah, and by bark we mean tree bark. And yeah. Things, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, bark, bark, whatever. Um, yeah, but thankfully not each other, or not what we've heard. Yeah, don't know actually. Yeah. Uh, with the castle weakened, the French stormed it. Uh, they did undermining. What's uh, that? So that's like digging under the walls to collapse the walls. Mm-hmm. I wonder if anyone got hurt when they were doing that, when the walls just fell on. I imagine that must have happened. It's just the tunnels falling in. Yeah. In. And you'd have people trying to undermine the underminers. <laughs> so they would dig tunnels under the other tunnels or fight in the dark. the tunnels. Exactly, yeah. Didn't have torches. And it's also where... Um, like the term to undermine somebody comes from. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, anyway, you were saying, so they undermined the main tower. Yeah, the main tower uh, of the outer wall, but they still faced a brutal fight and more defensive walls inside. But these were quickly defeated when the French soldier named Ralph spotted an undefended toilet chute leading into the chapel. So that was the chapel toilet. Yes. <laughs> and how you found it, maybe you heard a plop. Yeah. He was like, something smells... Well, I was going to say something smells fishy here. Something smells pooey here. So the French climbed this and set fire to the chapel and continued to attack. Not long later, the castle fell into enemy hands and Richard's jewel was lost from the kingdom and King John obviously had butter fingers. Shouldn't have made the walls of butter then. Yeah. <laughs> this left Normandy open to attack by the French leading uh, to its eventual defeat and loss of Aqua... Oh, Aquitaine. Yeah, Aquitaine. Yeah, so that would be some of the um, land controlled by King Richard and you could say in the future, like, the British, I guess, as they were King of England. That was... It was a lot of France, actually. It was, yeah. looked on a map. Yeah, so this was the route into Normandy, but then there's Aquitaine as well, was yeah. some of their land. So um, it changed probably some of the balance of power in France and a lot of history. Yeah. Cool. That's a pretty exciting story, though. Yeah. Isn't it? Although, dodge your toilets better, I think is the advice. Now let's go on to the Fugger Sinks. Phobias, phobias, I'm not scared of you. Eek, sinks! So, do you know what a phobia is? Um, sort of. It's like a fear or something. Yeah, it's an irrational fear or something, though, or like a really extreme aversion to it. So something that you shouldn't really be scared of. So it could be a place, a situation, an animal, a person, anything. Then we thought of this topic when you said whenever you go near the sink in the bathroom you feel... A little bit funny or maybe a little bit scared. Yeah, and dizzy. Yeah. And I thought, oh, there must be a phobia of sinks. And it turns out there is. And I'm going to try and pronounce it here. And I've practised loads of times and now I've forgotten. Shuikophobia. 
I think it's correct. Yeah. Shoey cafobia. So this isn't the phobia of shoes, this is the phobia of sinks. Yes. So why do you think people might feel scared of sinks? Maybe because of the plug. Mm. Um, there's a hole in that. But then people might be scared of baths as well and like... Um, yeah, I was thinking probably the plug as well and how the water's being kind of sucked, sucked away in there. Scared of... Um, and it's a dark hole and things yeah. might come crawling out of it. <laughs> well, how do you think it could affect them as well, having a real favour of sinks? Um, wash your hands, clean your teeth? I guess, yeah, but you can't actually fill anything up, though, can you? Because you, you wouldn't fill a tub up to wash your hands because there's still the sink. Yeah. How would you do that? It'd be quite tricky to do anything. Phobias, phobias, I'm now terrified like you. Eek. Okay, for our final feature, I'm going to talk about Egyptian mummies. <laughs> because Egyptian mummies can talk, and you'll find out how in a minute. Why aren't we interviewing one then? Okay, so Egyptian mummies, they've long held a fascination for people. From the boy king Tutankhamun, complete with splendid death mask and an ancient curse that struck down those who entered his tomb, to the Victorian mummy unwrapping parties, uh, which were a mixture of macabre fascination and the latest scientific discovery. But up until now, they've never been allowed to have their own say on such matters. <laughs> the mummy of Nesiyam, an Egyptian priest who died 3,000 years ago, has long been at the forefront of mummy studies. He was the subject of a mummy unwrapping party in 1824, by members of the Leeds Philosophical and Literary Society. And now this group they involved like surgeons, there's a chemist there, and in 1828 they released their findings. And this is the first such time that anybody had released such a detailed scientific look at Egyptian mummies. I've got a picture here for you to look at, which I put in the show notes as well, of a mummy unwrapping party. So you can see there's lots of people gathered around, there's some well-dressed ladies here and some gentlemen standing around. I as... feel like we've got, um, I think they're called feathers. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Like, yeah, on their heads, they've got some feathers on their heads, so I don't think that was required attire, though. <laughs> oh, they've got the mummy on the table, they've unwrapped the bandages, or whatever it was in, and they've started to cut it open and explore inside. At least that isn't as bad as, um, I think it was in Victorian times when they ate a mummy. Yeah. Yeah, they had, they used it for medicine and things, didn't they? Yeah. Now, a little over 100 years later, the same mummy was x-rayed, and then further uh, studies continued in the 1960s and the 1990s with more x-rays. They started using endoscopes, which are basically like a long tube with a camera on the end that can stick <laughs> yeah. inside things to have a look. Um, and CT scans, where they can um, sort of take images of the brain and things. It was discovered that he was probably in a, his 50s when he died. But what do you think his cause of death was? Um, probably tripping over and hurting himself. <laughs> okay, it's almost as um, embarrassing as that. Okay, on the toilet. Poos. That's more embarrassing. Oh. Yeah. Almost is it? Oh. It could be defending a castle. Was he defending a castle? No. Right. At first they thought it might have been strangulation. But I reckon some of that was due to kind of the excitement of having an old ancient Egyptian mummy there and they wanted to build like a really good story around it. Because yeah. there's kind of that romance around the idea, isn't there? <laughs> but it turns out that he was probably stung on his tongue by an insect and died of an allergic reaction, so anaphylactic shock. Oh, that must be annoying. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was mummified with his tongue sticking out and his eyes bulging, and apparently his face was still contorted with like the pain and the drama of death. Whew. 
Under the ancient Egyptians attributed his death to a message from their guards with Neshimon being a priest. Now, despite his tongue being stung and being dead for 3,000 years, Neshimon speaks again. Well, sort of. Now, I'm going to play a sound recording for you here. So you listen carefully. Hopefully this will work. <laughs> so can you hear that uh, sound? Yeah. Which actually sounds quite annoying. Yeah. <laughs> well, what do you think made that sound? Um, like maybe air escaping or something. Or like um, something falling out. Okay, so what's happened is a team of scientists and engineers have recreated and 3D printed Neshamon's vocal tract, which they want to try and learn how his voice might have sounded. Mm. Now, it doesn't contain any of the soft tissue and muscle, so it doesn't move kind of in the same way as when we speak. So think of all the motions and stuff that are going on in your throat. Yeah. But it does give a glimpse of how he might have spoken. They might be able to recreate the noises that it could make, but would they pick up on things like accents? Mm. Yeah. I don't know if they would. Now, Professor David Howard, who co-authored the study, said, What we have done is to create the sound of Nesimon as he was in his sarcophagus. It is not the sound of his speech as such, as he is not actually speaking. <laughs> so it's just kind of a hint at how his voice might have been, and I think they plan on doing more modelling on computers and also maybe try and make better models to actually get more of an understanding of how he may have sounded. Yeah. Perhaps the sound we heard was his last cry of pain at the insect sting or how thousands of years later, his body would be subject to over 200 years of scientific study. Whoa. <laughs> in 1833, French aristocrat and Trappist monk, Abbot Ferdinand de Gebrard, stated in a letter to Pasha Muhammad Ali that, it would hardly be respectable on one's return from Egypt to present oneself without a mummy in one hand and a crocodile in the other. <laughs> So, if Nesheamon could talk today, what do you think he would really say? Um, I think he would be terrified. He's been dead for thousands of years and they dug up his body, unwrapped it in some kind of big Victorian um, exhibition and then continued to x-ray him. And, yeah, well, how long do people need to be dead <gasps> before they can be put on display and studied? Maybe. I'd probably say, why did he wake me up? <laughs> yeah, that's quite comfortable there, thank you very much. I was enjoying the afterlife. I'd had my heart weighed. <laughs> and I passed. somehow managed to get through. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think some of it is because um, the ancient Egyptian culture, as it was, has kind of disappeared, hasn't it? It doesn't feel like there's a direct line of descent between them and us now. They feel like different people. Yeah. Um, if you go back a hundred years and dug up somebody, you think, oh, that's still my relative. <laughs> yeah. But it's also pretty interesting science, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Trying to recreate their voices. <laughs> and that's a wrap on another episode. Whoppa, whoppa, whoop! Rap. Yeah, the Raptosaurus Rex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's dreadful. Um, thank you very much for listening. Remember, review us on all the various podcast networks. Follow us on Twitter at CurieChildPod. Over to Anton to say some farewell. Farewell. Machicolation.